Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A shot echoed around the river valley which bisects Rothbury. It and the ensuing shouts of police marksmen could be heard clearly across the village. It was over. Raoul Moat, Britain's most wanted man, had shot himself after a six-and-a-half-hour standoff. But Tyson wins yet another header. He's won his battle with David Villa tonight, that's for certain. This one's through the middle. It is Arjen Roman. Is this the moment for the Netherlands? Casillas saves Spain. Robin holds his head in his hands and can't believe he is not now accepting the glory. Did that successfully and Van Persie with the opportunity to play Robin in. Oh, and Robin, was he pulled back? And for the second time, Arjen Robin is frustrated by his own inability to beat Ica Casillas. Netherlands, Spain is nil-nil and we have 30 more minutes to play. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the greatest games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller. Jonathan Wilson is here with us, of course. And with us as well is Miguel Delaney, Chief Football Writer at The Independent. Miguel, pleasure to welcome you back to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. But for the the pod I actually (laughs) wanted to do the first time. (laughs) Uh, well, today we go back to the 2010 World Cup final. Netherlands nil, Spain one. Miguel, why have you chosen this match? Uh, I'd say because it's important to me both personally and professionally. First of all, it was the first World Cup I ever did. Uh, World Cup final, well, both World Cup and World Cup final I ever did. Um, uh, which is obviously kind of you know one of the reasons you, you get into the industry. Although, I mean, this might be a subject for discussion later. I would almost class the Champions League final as the game I'd want to go to more than the World Cup final at this point. Uh, but maybe that's related to the, to the other reason, which is the personal reason, that it's, of course, uh, I was privileged to see one of my two countries uh, win the World Cup. 
And uh, I was actually talking to Johnny Lou about this during the week when he, when he referred to, he was talking about England winning the Cricket World Cup. After you've experienced something like that, particularly when it's a long way to release, like Spain finally winning it, it feels like no other game they play after that can ever compare. So unless it were Ireland to get to a World Cup final, which is obviously unlikely, uh, I maybe maybe that maybe that's why I don't see the World Cup final as the game I did then. If you if you kind of know what I mean, and why I consider the Champions League ahead of it in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, it's obviously. I mean, I, I do have to say, even when I was in Russia in 2018, after what had been a slog of a tournament work-wise because of all the travel, when when I when I remember coming out into the stadium and, think, and do, thinking like, oh, this, this is what it's all about. Games like this, the, you know, the feel of it for the final. Uh, but obviously, that was maxed up to uh, to the most possible for uh, my own country being there in uh, in 2010. And, and the other side of that was. I was working for the Irish paper, the Sunday Tribune at the time, which went bust actually about eight months later, and is one of the reasons I'm in England now. Um, but uh, it meant I didn't have to write live on the game, uh, <laughs> which would just be inconceivable now. And so I was in, a, I, I was working, but uh, in a, in a, like essentially able to watch freely. Yeah, Jonathan, you've you've made no. Uh, you've not hidden the fact that it's not your favourite World Cup tournament of course the 2010 World Cup but the the final itself I mean we'll get on to the game in the the second part did you did you feel the sort of sense of the occasion or were you just relieved that it was the the final match of a football tournament Um, (laughs) Ah. yeah I mean your World Cups um, I've become increasingly aware of this as I've got older uh, a huge amount, and particularly as a journalist, is about about your own experience of it. Mm-hmm. And in 2010, I got it badly, badly wrong. So 2006, I've been covering England, which is you know exhausting and dull in its own way. Uh, and, and and 2006, I mean, the word Miguel used slog is exactly how it felt in 2006. 2010 was even worse. That I'd gone to, I was I was working for DPA, the German press agency at the time, and they sent me to Rustenburg before the draw was was made, and then England end up that they they're going to play the the US there in the first game, and they decide to base themselves there, so so I end up covering England again like by mistake, and the nature of South Africa is it's very very difficult to get around without a car, and I I, I don't drive, so it's very reliant on other people, so I was essentially stuck in Rustenburg, and. Uh, you know, for dull work-related reasons, I, I hadn't booked as early as I normally do to get to the semi-finals. So I did the two quarterfinals in Johannesburg. So I did the the Ghana Uruguay game, and I did the Spain Paraguay game. And I remember that day, uh, and I was looking at is there a way I can get down to I can't remember which around the two semis were, but Cape Town and Durban. Uh, yeah, how can I get down there? How can I find somewhere to stay? And it just wasn't possible. The flights were, you know, thousands of pounds. I just couldn't do it. And so then I thought, right, we have to stay in Johannesburg for a week. And I was looking at hotel prices, and I realised it was cheaper to fly back to London and then fly back out again for the final than to stay in Johannesburg. <laughs> and once that thought's in your head, when you've had a pretty disappointing tournament, when it's been sort of a real grind thing, you haven't really enjoyed it, it doesn't go away. And you think, yeah, there's no point spending two or £3,000 to cover this one extra game. So I, I went home after the quarterfinals. Now, my experience of Russia was totally different to Miguel's. I loved Russia because I got the organisation you know, spot on. Um, I was I basically stayed in Kazan for most of the tournament. I saw some fantastic football in Kazan. And and Russia sort of really rekindled my my love for the World Cup. But South Africa was, was the most sort of 
gloomy I'd been about the future of international football. And that was partly my own experience, was partly you know, the, 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 the quality of football, with the exception of a couple of sides, Spain being one of them, and the actual ball itself were was so low. It just sort of felt like a like a decaying format. Yeah, I mean, the South Africa World Cup was the first time I'd sort of dipped my toe into into going to a World Cup. I mean, we we were out there covering the final. We didn't go to the match itself. We were in a fan park, so a very very different experience, obviously, from yourself, Jonathan. And the whole, as we've mentioned before, that you know the backdrop of of it being in South Africa was incredible. And, and so on and so forth, um, and, and I mean, Miguel, how did you how did you find that the, the World Cup being in Africa itself? You know, you said it was the first time you covered it. What was that kind of experience? Did it kind of capture your imagination a bit? It was. I mean, Jonathan's right about the distances travelled, and I think that's probably become a problem with the World Cup that it's now so massive event that you almost need countries the size of continents to stage it. Mm-hmm. Because my, the first tournament ever done was Euro two thousand and eight which is almost a dream tournament to do in terms of logistics because for the Swiss cities, say, you could get to all of them within an hour and a half of each other, bar Geneva, which is only two and a half or three hours away. And I call the trains are free. So that was, that was so good to work around, whereas this involved flights everywhere. Uh, so it meant my experience was a little bit more limited. I was only in um, Johannesburg and Santon, or Soweto and Santon, uh, so, sorry, Soweto and uh, Johannesburg, given it was Ellis Park and Johannesburg, Soccer City and Soweto, and then Cape Town. Uh, I absolutely loved Cape Town. Um, wasn't as mad on on uh, Johannesburg. I, I spent the tournament in 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 Sanson. Uh, although obviously the um, the stadium itself is now quite. I, I have, I'll always have that kind of appreciation for it or affection for it. I think I think Jonathan's right in terms of the tournament itself. Well, it, I mean, it was a bad tournament, a low scoring tournament, mm. bad, and I think it had basically come. At the end of this era in football, which is now, I think we're now we've moved on to a completely different era. But it was the end of this this period where the game fully moved towards the club game as the dominant side of football, and that's almost why Spain and to a degree Germany were so distinctive within that, because they obviously, I mean, Spain were ultimately founded on the Barca team, so they had a club cohesion that was basically beyond the majority of, of other teams in the competition they just couldn't recreate that because they didn't have the, they couldn't reach the same level but it did make their, it made their games slogs as well because and I think I think this was very much influenced by Inter's approach to Barca in the 2010 Champions League semi-final that happened just two months before it meant almost literally every Spanish game was basically them having 80% of possession or whatever it was most of the game taking place in the 30 metres in front uh, sorry around the 30 metre line in front of the opposition box and defences kind of just sitting in tight about them which I think took away from Spain uh, because I think like as you saw at the start of year 2008 if they're if they're allowed to play against a team that opened up, they could be they could be brilliant to watch as well. But it kind of made them boring. Look, I made all their games. So sh- that that's one thing that stands out for me during that tournament. Obviously, I had a massive <laughs> vested emotional interest. But for everyone that goes on about how dull the tournament was, and even the final, it was a dull match. Although I watched it again recently, and I don't think it was a dull match. There were so many chances. Um, but for me, it, it it wasn't tedious. It was just every single game was so tense, and particularly actually almost as much as the final, the Paraguay game in the quarterfinal. Mm. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, obviously Spain got off to a losing start against Switzerland. What did, what did you think of, of Spain under Del Bosque? Um, coming into the tournament, European champions, of course, we knew they were a great side. They'd sort of 
disappointed slightly in in maybe one or two previous World Cups, and then they lose that first game. What were your thoughts on Spain in that in that first round? Um, I, well, I, I think I had great admiration for them without much affection for them, mm-hmm. um, and I I, 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 I mean that. I, yeah, I don't mean that to sound sort of negative. Uh, I mean, I remember quite clearly um, during the semi-final against Germany, uh, I was on a radio program at, at half time, and they, they, you know, it was nil nil at half time, and you know they said, um, "Oh, you know, Spain are dominant, but they haven't got the breakthrough. They're going to have to change things." And me thinking, "No, that's just not what they do. There's no need to change <laughs> things. The nature of this Spain is." They control games absolutely, and I think Miguel's right. I think think Barca's experience against Inter had, had conditioned that they were they were they were risk averse. I, I think Del Bosco's personality maybe uh, lend itself slightly to that, and I think probably what happened against Switzerland sort of absolutely affirmed that was the way they're going to go about things. They're going to not take risks, um, and yeah, they only let in uh, two goals in the whole tournament. Switzerland and, and Chile were the only two teams to score against them, and it, it, so even that Germany game. There's just a sense that the, the 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 nature of their passing, the nature of them having 70, 75% of the ball in every game, 80% of the ball, would eventually, the attrition of that would wear down an opponent. So after 45 minutes, you knew they had another 75 minutes, including extra time, to, to, you know, to wait for the mistake. And as it turned out, in that game, it happened to be a set play. It wasn't a mistake. But if you have that level of domination... The, the team you're playing against has to A, be spectacularly focused, B, spectacularly fit, and C, spectacularly lucky to get away with it. And after, after Switzerland, no team was. In, in relation, actually, to the um, to why, how Spain got a bit more defensive, as well as that, in 2008, the only really defensive midfielder was Marcus Senna, who covered a lot, whereas in 2010... Del Bosque put in Busquets, who was brilliant, obviously, and was kind of uh, an improvement on Senna, but also put in Alonso. So I almost had two pivots. And then I actually, I think that took away from both Xavi and Iniesta. It made Spain a little bit less fluid. Or no, no, maybe that's the wrong word. It made them just a bit more defensively, structurally sound rather than attack, fluid in an attacking sense. And it maybe took Xavi and Iniesta a little bit away from where they were at their absolute best um, just to, to add a bit more defensive security. And, and, and Spain's route to the final, I mean, they were, I suppose you could say they grew into the tournament, you know, losing their first game. And then even against Chile, I mean, they, they led 2-0, were pegged back 2-1. You know, they, they needed to win that game to make sure they went through. Tricky tie against Portugal, but with a better side. But you've already mentioned it, Miguel, that quarterfinal against Paraguay, against a decent Paraguay side, every team needs a little bit of luck if they're going to go on and win a tournament, so the amount of games you play, and so on and so forth. You know, Paraguay score a goal which was given offside, which wasn't, and they miss a penalty. So, and I, I grant you that um, you know Spain, uh, uh, you know Xavi Alonso missed a penalty when he had to retake it after to scoring first. But Spain were a little bit fortuitous in that game. But it was so. So the idea of it being just quite boring. I, I agree with you. I remember watching that match, and it, it was very tense. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's the thing, actually. The Swiss game very much set the tone for that entire tournament in Spain. It's every, because they immediately needed to win. And it wasn't just about getting through the group. There was also the pressure that they wanted to avoid playing Brazil in the last 16. Obviously, it would have been much easier. Like they didn't want a game that massive that early. 
Um, so it was key to try and finish top of the group as well. So straight away, there was this intense pressure on Spain. And that hung mm. over every single match, which felt like it really culminated in that quarterfinal. And they were so close to going out. Um, when you kind of look at it now, um, the, the, the penalty, the Paraguay penalty so late in the game, uh, even if you actually look at the goal that Villa scored, the nature—it almost had this uh, this teasing nature to it. It was testing your emotions <laughs> away. It hit both posts and then eventually went in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I suppose Paraguay, a little bit like Inter with uh, with that Barcelona, were me exactly the sort of team because because they were more suited to that defensive style. Other teams weren't. Other teams kind of adapted it for Spain. Paraguay kind of fit into it more readily. They were exactly the sort of team that, that Spain hated play against. And, and one thing about that Spain as well, Jonathan kind of uh, alluded to it there, but a little bit like Guardiola's Barcelona is that as good as they could be, they had a glass jaw in a sense because they were so based on possession. And this is, of course, why he brought in Busquets and Alonso. They were so susceptible to a sudden quick counterattack where because they were so far forward and so much, if they suddenly lost in the wrong area, you know, they're at the their their entire half of the pitch was at the mercy of one run up field. Mm. And in the other side of the draw, of course, Jonathan, the Dutch are there. Um, they've they've gone through their group nine points, so so qualified handsomely into the second round. They beat Slovakia two one. It was their quarter final against Brazil, uh, Dunga's Brazil, and they were fancied to go deep in the tournament, where. Wesley Slider started to come into his own as well and become one of the, the talked-about players of the tournament. That's where people started to believe that the Dutch could go all the way and it could be their first World Cup win. Yeah, I mean, that, that game against Brazil was... I mean, I, I know it's a less famous game than the Ghana-Uruguay game, but in some ways, I, I think that Netherlands-Brazil uh, game was, was the best game of the tournament. Mm. Uh, and partly it was that you know, we sort of got used to the, the Dutch losing to Brazil. You know, they'd done it in 94, they'd done it in 98... And you know the way that was set up, I think there was an expectation something similar would happen. And as it turned out, that that Brazilian system was very sort of blockish, and and there was those spaces in in their four two three one just in front of the fullbacks, which which Robin and Schneider exploited, um, and, and uh, Carrot as well eventually. Uh, so th- yeah, that that was the first game where I sort of thought, yeah, there might be there might be more to this Dutch side than I'd anticipated. But what I find fascinating, and this is true of Spain as well, actually. Is the 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 conversation going on in the Netherlands at the time, which was, I don't think it was widespread, but it was certainly among a significant number of influential thinkers, journalists, former players, former coaches. There was a real sort of unease about how they played, and mm. it, yeah, I think this is a particularly Dutch obsession. Um, <laughs> but there was a sense that this was somehow not quite the the total football tradition. It wasn't quite in there. Yeah, you know, in 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 their, their their best lineage, and there was a sense that under Van Marwijk they they were a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more cynical. And then the the, you know, the fascinating thing about that is that although uh, Spain were um, they did, although Spain essentially didn't take risks, their football seemed to be much closer to the Dutch ideal, which itself was sort of a rejection of the. And again, you know, this is a this is a stereotype which doesn't always hold true. But the idea of La Furia Roja, which has existed from you know from uh, from the Antwerp Olympics, was, was where the, the the name was first given. This this idea of this sort of uh, that Spain were, were a team who played with with great passion and great fury, and it, you know they never won anything with that. Uh, well, they won European Championship, but essentially, you know, they never done done as well as they probably should have done in World Cups with that. And they are the team who who sort of take on this this intellectual 
careful possession-based Dutch tradition. So it's it's both sides have sort of turned against the stereotype of how they play, and and you know, I, I think particularly in the months after the final in the Netherlands that became a huge huge talking point. And initially, you know, there was uh, you know the sort of massive fans uh, sort of thought, yeah, this is just your yeah the 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 canal the canal belts intellectuals you know this is not sort of real football this is not actually relevant but as time went by i think there was a recognition in the netherlands that this was your betrayal too strong a word but it it certainly wasn't the sort of football they thought they should be playing just just on that actually you mentioned the kind of history of spain as well because this is something that really struck me um, and reminded me of my youth uh, when I, in the last few weeks when I've been working on kind of this Euro 96 stuff and Euro 2000 stuff that I mean whatever about England's history in international tournaments and 40 years of hurt and all that or 30 years of hurt it was 96 Spain went through some really just chaotic campaigns that were just so frustrating um, and, and they always seemed to get themselves into even though they were often a, a good team who should have done much better it wasn't just that they under underperformed in that sense they got themselves into just these needless positions where they had to fight everything we, you know Europe 2000 being a classic case where they lost the opening game to uh, to Norway then had it, this manic recovery against uh, against Yugoslavia and then Raul misses a penalty in the last minute against France you know hadn't got past the quarterfinals in any tournament bar Euro 84 they were beaten in the final by, by France and even though they'd won Euro 2008 which is going to break that mental hole a little bit it did feel throughout Euro two, or sorry, throughout the 2010 World Cup that a lot of, all of this was kind of teetering a bit and like the, 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 the Spanish capacity for underperformance, which it would have been underperformance if they didn't win that tournament. I mean, that's why in relation to what Jonathan's saying there about Cruyff and all the rest of it uh, and, the kind of, and those principles, um, Sp- Spain, it, it became about something bigger than Spain winning the World Cup and Xavi in that kind of really sanctimonious way he has. You know, talk, it, it wasn't just for Spain, it was for football because it, w- it was seen as a kind of a victory of a certain style. And well, that's obviously kind of, you know, self-serving. He loves it, old Xavi, doesn't he? Quite, yeah, quite <laughs> it, it, it was to some degree true in that they, like Barcelona, they basically pioneered, or maybe not pioneer is the wrong word, they, they were the high priests of a form of football that was becoming dominant for, uh, in, in the game, not just international football. In fact, it was probably rarer in international football because of the nature of it than it was in club football, where it was really becoming dominant. Um, but, you know, it, they were meant to be fulfilling all this. And had they failed and to win that World Cup, it would have been failing in a manner of ways uh, due to their quality and also their approach. And then the, you know, the extraordinary thing is we, we then see the next, the next two World Cups, 2014, 2018, just how sort of flimsy that was. I mean, we, we've gone straight back to Spanish chaos, whether that's getting smashed 5-1 by the Dutch, the Dutch, you know, the, the that sort of weird sort of brotherhood slash rivalry, mm. uh, and then sacking their manager on the eve of the tournament. Yeah, completely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking that myself. And also since since 2012, when they, when they did three in a row, the greatest achievement in uh, international football, and the sort of thing you should think, you know, completely changes a team's identity in the way that, say, 1958 did to Brazil. You know, it makes them winners. But since that, they haven't got past the the, uh, the last 16 of the tournaments. Yeah, man. All right, gentlemen, let's have a quick break, and after which we'll talk about the final itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Van Bommel weaves his way between Spanish bodies. But when they win it, there's the opportunity to break and to slip Fabregas in. It is Cesc Fabregas. And just as Robin was foiled at this end of the field earlier by Casillas, so Fabregas is foiled by Stecklenburg. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Join me, Pete Donaldson, and Japan-based YouTuber Chris Broad every Wednesday as we offer the lowdown on what's happening in one of the most unique and exciting countries in the world. The Abroad in Japan podcast is home to all things Japan, from things to do... So today we've come to you guys with 12 places in Japan that nobody knows about. ...to the bizarre... When I moved into my new apartment last year, the police guy came to my door, mm. knocked on my door, I opened it, it was a policeman, and he said to me, in English, I am Japanese policeman. <laughs> and I went, that's the best introduction you could possibly do as a Japanese policeman. <laughs> to the downright filthy. And for those of you who don't know what a Tenga is... Pete and I did discuss how to describe it best before doing the podcast, and I'll let Pete describe what a tenga is. What is it, Pete? It's a solo male silicon-based ordinanist's aid, so to speak. Brilliant. New episodes every single Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. A Road in Japan is a Stakhanov production. Welcome back to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. Right then, chaps, um, let's talk about the final itself. If my calculations are correct, Jonathan, it was the first time since 1978 that we would be treated to a new world champion because uh, obviously the Dutch had reached the final a couple of times and they, they'd failed and, 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 and Spain had never won the tournament either. Um, and g- going into the tournament, I, I mean, I had Spain down as sort of slight favourites but but you, you you never know but something about the match that I'd forgotten and you alluded to this earlier Miguel it was very fast and frantic straight from the start that first half was in particular had like quite a few incidents and so on and it wasn't the kind of dull nil-nil affair that maybe some people might incorrectly remember it as no there were a load of chances um I suppose mm. straight away the Dutch went in really aggressively on on Spain, um, and Van 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 Bommel in particular. And I remember a, a lot of the Barca or the yeah the, the the Barca players were really irritated about that because they played with Van Bommel. Like Iniesta knew Van Bommel well, so did Xavi. But then it's a World Cup final. But that was obviously the Dutch approach straight off, and it set the tone because Spain were were then maybe didn't go. I mean, there was no incident from Spain like De Jong's kick on Xavi Alonso, but they started to mix it themselves. And Iniesta was actually very lucky not to get sent off earlier. I think he was already in a booking. 
and kind of he didn't quite elbow Van Bommel, but he kind of like shunted his body to kind of send Van Bommel mm. flying. And you know, a, a different we- referee rather than Webb might have sent him off. Um, but desp- I, I think so. That's what colors people's perception of the game, maybe just that it was this kind of this air of aggression. But beyond that, there were actually a lot of chances, and it, and it wasn't completely scrappy either. There was some kind of decent moves. Um, mm. But it was straight from the off. It, After four minutes, Ramos had a header saved well by Stekelenburg. D- David Villa was nearly put through. After eight minutes, Ramos again found himself in the box. After ten, Villa had a, a, a volley from close range. Like, like quite a lot happened even in the opening ten minutes of that match, yeah. which is just not how I remember it. No, totally. I mean, again, the the, the image is basically of that of a of a. I mean, especially when you when you kind of think back and just say nil nil going to extra time, you just think it was a staid. Yeah, uh, tense kind of standoffish game, but it was actually the very opposite of standoffish. They both did go for it, if if in if in different ways, with one kind of affecting the other. And even remember, beyond those kind of clearer Spanish chances, and the Dutch did have a few as well. Uh, there, was, there was, I think, one header from Matheson that he really should have scored from. But also, I think very early on, Casillas was nearly caught out by a massive punt up that he kind of just had to had to palm palm away barely, basically. That's right. Yeah. But I mean, I think we saw here. Not that not that anybody would have would have uh, noticed at the time or talked about at the time. But we actually you see here the seeds of what happens in 2014. That that mm. Dutch forward line with Van Persie and Robin and, and Schneider and okay, Kaut had gone by by by, um, uh, by by 2014. The shapes changed slightly, but the the pace and intelligence of those three of Schneider, Robin, and and, and Van Persie that that is what what can upset Spain. It, it's that, that capacity to counterattack really quickly. And of course, the irony of the whole thing is the Dutch don't like counterattacking. They don't think that's sort of proper football. <laughs> so the thing that, that Van Gaal you know, slightly belatedly acknowledged in 2014 and and set his team up to counter and, and had such success with against Spain, that was the thing that they were doing here. And you look at the, most of the Dutch chances, and it's the pace of Robin, it's the movement of Van Persie, it's Schneider, you're playing those precise passes into space. And so the... Yeah, the the tools that they had that they used so so effectively in 2014, they were there in 2010. They just didn't quite get the break. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, let's be fair. Well, actually, I was about to say Robin should have won the game. Um, mm. Every everyone remembers that, but I think there were far more clear cut chances in the match that uh, that could have been scored. But I suppose it was just. I mean, this this is a classic of what we were talking about, where Spain having dominated the ball. Where suddenly that, that that glass jaw was done again. Suddenly there was one punt up. It was Snyder with the ball forward, and Robin has put clean through on goal. And even the it's image an amazing of that, pass. Yeah, that is a yeah. sensational pass. The, the, he especially with that ball, but you know it's a it's a ball that bounces up and he hits it sort of you know kind of waist height or maybe sort of top of thigh height, uh, and just sort of cushions it. Perfect weight for Robin to run onto, and the only thing you'd say. Is that maybe he's a little bit too straight, and that's what you know. It's quite difficult for him to work the angle and get it onto his left foot. But even then, you know, Casillas has essentially gone the wrong way. It sort of hits the the top of his ankle and spins wide. And you look, you see Robin's face. Yeah, and Robin, can't believe it. Robin thinks he scored. He thinks he's you know he's 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 got enough height on his little clip on the ball. And then you know. Nine times out of ten, that goes past Casillas' leg. This one clips the leg and goes wide. Although, given the opportunity and what he could have done, I think it's quite uh, a safe finish. Uh, I know what you mean. He, 
he could have been, he could have been a bit bit more emphatic about it given given the the, the scope of the goal he had. He basically took the chance and put on Casillas' dive. So I think I think there are there is some blame for Robin there. But on the other side, I was I was well, actually to be honest, one documentary I watch a lot. I suppose it's a bit more poignant now given Michael Robinson has just uh, passed away. He he did a brilliant documentary series, that, or sorry, a brilliant documentary at Christmas in Forme Robinson called uh, When We Are Champions. It's all in Spanish, obviously, but he has incredible access to the whole squad who basically are giving their their take on every moment of the World Cup. And Puyol is the player that's chasing Robin at that moment. And he's talking about, and this is something that I, I, I found myself doing, I was watching it. He's talking, as he's running after Robin and he sees Casillas come out, he finds him, he said he can remember motioning his body to try and almost kind of influence Casillas to do the same. Like trying to, I mean, or not so much mimic, but, you know, like, like yeah, basically the way Sir Alex Ferguson used to kind of always you know, head an imaginary ball when attack was coming in. <laughs> uh, Puyol was doing that for Casillas. And even, even 10 years on, watching that break again, even though I don't know what's going to happen, I'm so tense watching, I find myself motioning my, my body like, like Puyol, so, so Casillas <laughs> does the same to try and stop it. Um, yeah. And then there's that other but, chance just after that when Puyol fouls Robin. And for once in his life, Robin stays on his That's about 20 feet. minutes after. Because actually, David Villa has a has a brilliant chance about seven minutes after that Robin one where he should score. Yeah, he puts it over the bar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that that other. I mean, I, I sort of bring that up just because it's a, you know it's a similar type of chance. Robin gets behind sure. the, the back four, and that time Puyol's close enough, and sort of there's a little bit of shoulder to shoulder. Robin gets in front of him, obviously being a much quicker player, and Puyol's arm goes across him, and if Robin goes Puyol down, fouls him. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, I, Puyol, it is a foul. If Puyol he goes down, it's a red card. Yeah. P- Puyol said in that documentary, it's, it's a red, definitely. But, I can, yeah. but even that raise, raises two points in relation to that. I mean, because obviously the, the emphasis in that Spanish squad is obviously the passing and the midfield. But two players that really rounded that out in, in every sense. I mean, first of all, does Casillas. And it, it feels like since Mourinho at Madrid, Casillas' legacy has taken a bit of a thumping. Whereas at that point, he genuinely probably was the best goalkeeper in the world. And he was so crucial, and this has been sometimes not even emphasised with David De Gea and his struggles. He was so crucial to that Spanish squad. A, yeah. because he was comfortable with the ball at his feet. And B, because of his willingness to come out off his line, not just in play, but also in terms of pushing up defensively. And which was seen in those two moments. Uh, and secondly, David Villa, who I actually think was the most important player in that Spanish team by far. Because he gave them an incisiveness that, that they just lacked. That the passing lacked. He got that, that verticality, as they'd say now. And I think he basically, to a degree, dragged them through to the quarters. He scored all the crucial goals. Mm-hmm. Or dragged them through to the semis, really. And had he been... And I think had he been at his best in the final, I think he was a little off that day. Spain yeah. win that more comfortably. Yeah, I think I think David Vera, if he, if he scored the winning goal in that final, people might talk about him... You know, obviously, Roberto Baggio didn't win the World Cup in '94, but that kind of tournament with a real standout player who, as you said, sort of dragged his team through and was was so crucial. Um, but I mean, w- but with Casillas, you know, his his influence can't be understated because he makes the penalty save against Paraguay, saves that Robin one on one, and people can say, well, it's a bit fortunate, but it's it's a team game, right? And the goalkeeper is a part of that. Um, but it, mentioning the foul on Piol. And we have to talk about Howard Webb's performance in the final because I believe both sides were very unhappy with it. Should Howard Webb have, have pulled that back 
and sent Puyol off and given a free kick? Or was he right to kind of play on and think, no, that's... It's always difficult, I think, when, when the forward keeps going because... Hmm. Um, well, he might not have sense. seen the, the foul. You know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that that one I think is difficult to see because you know the ball's played forward very quickly, so Webb's slightly behind the play, and it's entirely conceivable that the Puyol's body blocks off <laughs> Robin's angle, you know, blocks off his angle to see Robin. Um, and I, I'm not, I honestly don't know what the you know, what the right decision is if there's an attempt to commit a foul that then fails. And the player goes on and and misses, and then clearly Puyol's Puyol's foul it slows Robin down enough for PK to to to, to close mm-hmm. him down. So he has to then sort of go to his right, as going on there was a weaker foot, and that movement to his right is what what allows Casillas just to to, to to smother the ball. So I, I still think it, I, I, I still think it is a red card because he has stopped the clear goal scoring opportunity, but it's really not as clear. As as a lot of those decisions are, and it's certainly not yeah. as clear as the the red card that De Jong should have got. Well, yeah, it also means it's not as clear a chance because I think Casillas, unlike the one a few minutes before, Casillas smothers it quite comfortably in the end. It's quite weird actually. But he, he smothers it because Robin... Pika gets across and Robin has to then go into his right foot. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, exactly it's a sort right. of two stage process caused by Puyol committing the foul. Yeah, <laughs> but you're right. De Jong should have gone. I mean, it, it is that, that's. Oh. I, I, I have some sympathy for Webb in that performance because of the amount that was happening. And obviously because because of the World Cup final, I suppose there's a certain maybe subconscious element where you want to try and keep the game flowing, even though this game was constantly disrupted by fouls. And you obviously don't want to start handing out all sorts of yellow cards. But that's probably the... the I mean, that's obviously the one he got wrong. Uh, but inter- yeah, I mean, deeper- the one thing I would say about it, though, it's one of those that when you see the still shot of it... yeah. It looks horrific because it's a it's a boot going full into the chest, and certain angles when you see the 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 moving the video footage of it, it looks horrific. But I have to say, when I first saw it, yeah, I, I mean, I, agree. I, I yeah, it, it is. It, it was a red. It clearly was a red. However, I I also think it's a kind of thing that people who don't watch a lot of football get very upset about, and people who do watch a lot of football just sort of yeah, well, sometimes it happens. You know, should be a red, but move on. And because the World Cup final has been inflated, I, I, I think it's um, it's not quite as bad as a lot of people have made out. Oh, well, I mean, well, but even even whatever whatever the young as well, Van Bommel probably should have got. I mean, Van Bommel by that point had about four or five yellow card worthy fouls. Like he, he yeah, really I mean, was. What, were, were there fourteen yellows shown in the end in the whole game? Nine so many yellow five cards. Spanish. Yeah, so many yellow cards. But Howard Webb, he booked Van Persie sort of fairly early on in the first half for a foul. And, and and as he booked him for that, he might not have booked him. That did set the tempo. Now, I would say that the majority of the fouls then committed after that were yellow cards, at least, you know, as you've suggested some of them. But am I right in saying, Miguel, that in Spain they didn't think much of Howard Webb's performance because of, the, you know, the de Jong foul? But also in the Netherlands they didn't think much of his performance because they felt that Piol should have been sent off. So he, he ended up not pleasing either side. Um, well, I suppose everything everything with Spain since has been coloured by the fact they actually won it. So that's kind of a rough... Sure. I mean, if they, if they hadn't won it, I'm sure there would have been a lot more anger. Uh, because even... Like, I think more so than Webb, what I remember is the Spanish were more irritated with the Dutch players themselves. But that mm. then passed because 
they were really the players were really impressed by and I think the Spanish public were really impressed that immediately after the game the Dutch players gave them a guard of honour um, mm. so that, I think that that helped kind of calm things down uh, so it, it meant maybe the the anger where, I mean, obviously there was a bit of criticism web and if you if you if you watch some of the um, the span like you you can watch the, the various Spanish commentaries of the game on YouTube now and like I think web is referred to a little bit a little less respect than that might really warrant <laughs> at, at some points, but then there, there is a, one of my favourite moments, and this, this is shown on a on a Robinson documentary, which obviously I was in the same at the time, so so wouldn't have been conscious of any of this. But it's amazing, you know, after you've been at an event like that and after you see the highlights, how one experience starts to blur into the other. But there's a great bit on the Canal Plus documentary where uh, in the very last minute their commentator I, I don't know the name of the guy but he just writes basically pleading with Webb this is how he ends his commentary hey, you know for God's sake Webb blow it up for God's sake blow it up <laughs> uh, and then of course you know the attitude to, uh, to Webb changes yeah I didn't I mean no, I, I do, I I do s- think I mean I, 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 I do yeah Miguel mentioned the sympathy as for Webb and I, I completely do as well because mm. as a referee what are you meant to do in a game like that you know, yeah. you've you, you book Van Persie early as a sort of look. I'm I'm, I'm not going to stand for any nonsense. I'm a police officer from South Yorkshire. Don't mess with me. <laughs> and they keep doing it. Yeah. And if you if you keep that same level of booking booking every player who commits a foul, like like uh, Van Persie had, then suddenly you're the referee who sent off eight people in a World Cup final. Mm. And if you did that in a league game, people would talk about you for it forever but if you did in a world cup final you know so he he was i you know i i think and i I know i've said that on the said this on on this podcast about kalina a huge part of refereeing and i think this is true at any level is about your body language and and your your sort of the, the air of authority you project and that almost matters more than but you know whether you get 85% 85% decisions right or 95% mm-hmm. decisions right. That, that somehow your personality has to control things. And Howard Webb is a massive bald bloke who's a policeman. You know, he, <laughs> he does project authority. And yet even he in that game, you know, sort of nobody was, was paying any attention to him. Well, I, I actually think he's been harshly derided by some people, obviously being a neutral fan uh, watching, or, or sorry, neutral rather, uh, watching the game. I, I, I As you say, Jonathan... He said, you know, Van Persie's one. He's kind of got, right, come on. But then I'd say pretty much every other foul that he he dished out a yellow card for, he was right to. And Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, should... the only criticism, the criticism is he should have dished out more yellows. But you kind of yeah. think he's given out 14 already. You know, at some yeah, point, exactly. it becomes the player's <laughs> fault, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, it was. I think the most extraordinary statistic of that final, taking everything to account, is it took 108 minutes for the for the the, the only red card of the game to be given. You know, um, it was actually quite innocuous but, as well. But by the time it was given, yeah, because uh, um, it, 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 it's just yeah. kind of like this, this feather touch on uh, <laughs> on Eniesta, who, who at that point I think, probably to be fair to him, probably frustrated with how night's gone. Eniesta goes down quite easily under that push. Yeah, <laughs> from John Hightinger. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Hightinger. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, into extra time. I mean, even even extra time was was more sort of tense and exciting than, than I remembered. And as we've mentioned, you know, Robin had his chances in the ninety. Via had a great chance. Ramos had a free header. And then into extra time, 
um, I forget you, Jonathan or Miguel, or you were both saying that that Spain controlling the possession and dominating when they when they ground down teams, you know, this is where we began to see it. They they had a penalty appeal turned away. Fabregas had a one on one that that was saved. The game was opening up. Iniesta was causing problems, Miguel, and this is where Spain's style really came into its own. Yeah. Also, um, it's one thing I should really remind Richard Jolly of, given his fascination player. But this is probably also <laughs> Jesus Navas' greatest moment. Because uh, mm. he also, he offered, they'd taken V off by that point for, actually maybe it was a little bit yeah. later for Torres, but he brings on Navas. And, and Navas's direct running basically complements Spain's passing because it suddenly, oh, it kind of punches further holes in, in the Dutch defence. Uh, and that's, that's why, obviously, it's, it's a Navas, it's a 50-yard Navas run. It's really impressive, to be honest, if you watch it again. But that basically just breaks open the game and then initiates the move uh, that leads to the goal. I mean, there'd been the Fabregas chance before that, hadn't there, which was... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. As, as, a, as a Spain fan, were you starting to think, ah, oh, it's just going to be one of those days where we never never get the breakthrough? Uh, no, I was actually... And it, this was something that... I think it's Iniesta mentions it. Oh, no, it's David Villa, Sorry. And I, I, from what I remember, I think I think I was thinking the same. It's, I mean, it's easy to say now. Maybe I've been influenced by comments like that. But because the Dutch missed those chances, it, and because they felt so big, uh, I, it, it felt more like it was going to be Spain's night. And, and also, by that point, I think the Dutch were starting to recede more and more. Uh, and by the time the... the um, I mean, Fabregas should have scored that chance. I mean, he's put clean through. It's basically mm-hmm. one-on-one with the keeper. And it's, 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 it's worse than Robinson's. He kind of just puts it straight at Stecklenburg. Uh, it's it's a, it's a really like it, it 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 was a it was a it was a shot that basically kind of a bit like a penalty in that sense. It was one of the easiest for the, the keeper to save, even if he did well. But there was still a sense that something was coming, um, and and that Spain were, were more and more just beginning to push the Dutch further and further back. But then again, I mean, well, it's it's the it's the latest winning goal ever, isn't it? In a yeah, one hundred sixteenth minute. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, because but the red card for Johnny Heitinger, he just opens up a little bit more room, and you thought to yourself, I mean, it, it's got to be sort of now or never for Spain, as you say. I mean, penalties were looming, but the Dutch don't have a great record in penalties, um, even though Spain had missed no, a couple of penalties. No, no, in the Spain tournament. at that at that point, but it's improved since because of that team. Well, they, but in Euro two thousand and eight, they beat Italy on penalties, yeah. so they. I, I mean, I think you would have fancied Spain on penalties, of course. But 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 playing that kind of last sort of 10, uh, 15 minutes, whatever it was, of that final with the Dutch down to 10 men, you must have thought to Miguel, right, it, it's got to happen now. Yeah. This is that, it. Yeah, that was actually, uh, yeah. And, I, and I, that's, as much, that's as much it as, kind of, as, as Jonathan was kind of saying. It, it's because the chances and because the other... And, and again... Mm. Due to that, due to that red card, they're starting to get in behind more and more. There's just that bit more space, and it, it did feel. And also, I think that the Dutch were, were really tiring at that point, whereas the Spain had, had a, Spain had a bit more to go. I think they they used their substitutions better. From, I can't actually remember the Dutch subs. I remember all the Spanish ones. Um, but yeah, it it, it, it it just felt like it, it, it had tipped, and that, and that, that Spain were beginning to get in behind more and more. Mm. And I mean, I, I I I was very very nervous at the time. I think I was almost on my feet in that massive <laughs> South. I, I, I was quite lucky in that sense. I was beside Dion Fanning and Ken Early. Neither of oh, both lovely. of them were working for 
both, both of whom were, were working for Sunday papers as well. So at the very least, I wasn't disrupting anyone who was writing live. Um, <laughs> but I, I imagine I was getting increasingly agitated. I mean, there's always this thing. We, we, we all know in, like, when you're in a press box like that, you are conscious. I mean, I'd absolutely never be like one of the, one of the, one of the many Spanish journalists that were literally going to the game in Spanish jerseys or the way you see Ron Serra go to the Champions League finals in Real Madrid jerseys. There is, there is still an element of decorum. Um, sometimes you allow yourself kind of quiet fist pumps under the under the desk. I, I actually <laughs> shamefully I shamefully did that when Diego Costa equalised against Portugal in Sochi in 2018 in the opening group game. Uh, but for this, I imagine I was. Uh, you'd have to ask the lads in this, maybe. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I was a lot more agitated. Even back before yeah. the game, I remember me, me. There was a massive walk from the media centre to uh, the actual stadium, and I was nervous. And I, I, so I had a lot of kind of this nervous energy. And I remember myself and Ken were walking up to our to our, to our seat in the press box, which is quite high. We were at the Irish press at the time, and it, from, from the from wherever we were in the stadium, we heard <laughs> the opening the, or the kind of closing ceremony, which Shakira's "Waka Waka" song. I remember Ken right. turning around to me, "Is that Shakira?" And we both sprinted up to our seats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, but I'd like to say that was a reflection of the of the detention I was suffering, rather rather than you know. I look, it's, it's, as far as World Cup songs go, songs go, it's quite a good one. Yeah, well, <laughs> I won't ask you to comment <laughs> on that, Jonathan. Um, but the goal itself. Well, I, of course, I, I, I met Shakira in uh, 2006 on my 30th birthday, which is very good of her to come. Yeah, did she perform? No, no. she did. Yeah, um, in yeah. a in a massive stadium in Berlin. Uh, shortly oh, I before, see. Uh, Zinedine yeah, Zidane yeah, yeah. rather spoiled my big day. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, yeah. but it's good for Made all it those himself, people to turn he? out for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Jonathan, the goal itself, then Iniesta. Yeah, so as um, Miguel says, it's it's Navas who makes it really. I mean, it's not his assist, yeah. but it's it's his driving run. And there is a there is a big piece by Richard Jolly in, on on the Blizzard website uh, mm-hmm. about his uh, fascination for for the great man. Um, yeah, Navas drives forward. He's sort of held up and it ends up with, with Fabregas sort of repaying the compliment to Iniesta for the chance he'd had five minutes earlier. And the board just sort of bounces up. I'm not really sure. It must get, sort of get half blocked. And it bounces up and then it just sits perfectly for him. And you sort uh, of, I, I think, I, I think, in that I think moment before he strikes it, you know that, that he's going to score. It, 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 I think it's a pitch. And every, every time I look at that chance now, and invariably it's slowed down, it, it, it actually, because of the way the ball bubbles up, you feel as if that could easily have been blazed over by any player, but Iniesta mm-hmm. just catches it so purely, uh, and his own quotes on that are really good. Basically, like he he puts it basically, when when you're in a moment like that, it feels like everything is going in slow motion. But he said, mm-hmm. I I just I knew exactly what I was going to do, and like the split second I hit the ball, I knew it was going in. Um, you know, and of course, you know, Iniesta probably the player, one of the players, the purest technique in the world at that point. Uh, mm. But of course, one of the most special elements of the goal is that at the at the height, you know, at, at, at for, at for what is the greatest moment of Sp- in Spain's football history, but also obviously by far the greatest moment in Iniesta's personal career, a really a deeply kind of you know um, individual moment in that sense, and what it means for yourself. And yet, at the moment of that, at the moment of ecstasy, he basically shares it with his yeah. his dead friend. He, he lifts his shirt to reveal a. Uh, you know, uh, Danny Yar- Danny Harca, who died from a heart condition, with the former Espanol player, uh, is always with us. Uh, mm. you should, maybe should have got booked for that. 
<laughs> I think he did get booked. <laughs> no, I don't think he did because I think he already had a booking earlier in the game. He, uh, oh, right, okay. oh no, sorry, sorry, you're right. Actually, you're right. You're right. He did. He did get a booking for it because he got a booking for 118th minutes. Yeah. So so Webb must have booked him. Yeah. Mm. For it. That but but that I mean, been, yeah. Because but even I was I have thought about that. You know, even as you score the goal and just especially after a game like that and the tension and the release of finally getting it. It'd be easy to forget, but he doesn't. He whips it off straight away and makes sure, like at that moment, the yeah. world remembers his friend. It is quite. It's it's really touching. And, and of course, yeah. if you if you read um, Iniesta's book, which Sid has translated into English, um, and he, and even that documentary emphasizes as well. Danny Yake, who who died in September two thousand nine, uh, that was it. Made it an extremely difficult year for Iniesta personally. He wasn't at his best for Barca. He, as well as he's kind of the, the mental toll of his friend's death, uh, there was a physical toll. He missed three months of the season. Uh, he, in fact, he missed uh, the semi final against Inter. And you know, there's there all sorts of talk whether had he been on the pitch, maybe Barca would have had enough to go through. And he started, he, he started that that campaign unfit. And he, a bit like Spain, he kind of gradually found his form as the tournament came on, and was probably their best player from the quarterfinals on. A fitting end to uh, an amazing tournament for Spain and, and Miguel. It's been it's been enjoyable actually going over that tournament with you and especially the final because, as I say, I, I perhaps remembered it slightly incorrectly. It was it was it was a better final even though there was just the one goal in 120 minutes. Um, but yeah, Spain's uh, Spain's um, dominance uh, shining through in South Africa. So yeah, thank you, Miguel. It's been a pleasure having you on your, on the podcast uh, once you. again, um, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and uh, for, for, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk, as Jonathan's already said. But thank you yourself, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to The Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with The Blizzard. We'll see you next week. They try to open up the Dutch via another route. Iniesta's in the middle all alone. If Fernando Torres can find him, it's stabbed away uncomfortably to Fabregas. Surely now, surely now, Spain have won the World Cup for the first time in history. This was a Stakhanov production. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>